Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy and this is the Poor Proles Almanac. Today we're joined by Taylor of the Redbud Resource Group. The Redbud Resource Group helps organizations, institutes, and employers become valued partners with Native peoples and their communities. Their programs utilize public health and education research to empower change by filling knowledge gaps and improving outcomes for communities experiencing chronic disparities. Taylor is one of the most unique people I've had on the podcast. Her background in education provides the perfect framework to have uncomfortable conversations around land acknowledgements, land back, and erasure. This episode might make some people uncomfortable, but it's a really important conversation to have. Please continue listening, and I look forward to your feedback as always. Taylor, thanks so much for joining us. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the uh, organization? Sure. My name is Taylor Pennywell, and I'm a tribal member of Berry Creek Rancheria of Taimaidu Indians of California, and I'm located in Sonoma County, which is north of San Francisco. I am a former school teacher. I taught middle school in San Francisco for seven years, and I am currently the founder and executive director of Redbud Resource Group. We're a all-women, Native-led nonprofit that is working on addressing public health and education disparities in Native American communities. Awesome. So what made you leave teaching and decide to do something like this, this organization, the Redbud Resource Group? And many Native families were raised with the understanding that um, we're you know, supposed to use our education, use our experiences, use the lessons that we learn in life to give back to our communities. And so while I always knew I wanted to be a school teacher at some point, and I, and I really loved the job and loved working with kids and was really challenged by the work, I always knew that eventually I was going to use that experience that I was given through that job to uplift my people. To go to go back to my community and and to use the skills that I that I was given um, to improve the native community and to uplift um, our sovereignty as people. Was there one specific thing that maybe happened that said like now is the time, or was it just kind of a you've been picking at it and that one day you're like, all right, I'm ready to make the jump. <laughs> so I was in a meeting with one of my bosses uh, or a superior of mine in school and. I was talking to them about my long-term career goals and, and this person, you know, asked like, Taylor, are you a lifetime teacher? Or are you going to eventually leave teaching uh, like all the other teachers do and do something else? And I said, um, I'm really, really invested in serving the Native community and serving our Native youth and making sure that they live in a world where they are supported. And she said, that is so awesome. Too bad we don't have any Native American kids in this school. And I, as a teacher, I had already connected with three Native students in my classes, just, just in my classes alone, right? Not, not even taking into consideration the rest of the school population. And so immediately I knew that the issue wasn't, it wasn't that this person didn't care about their students. It's that they literally didn't realize that Native people exist. They didn't see, she didn't see us right? Didn't see us in that school population. And it clicked for me in that moment that there are a lot of really, really awesome, well-meaning people who have good values and care about the community, but they're living their lives and trying to solve problems and address challenges without any knowledge or consciousness of Native existence. And that was the moment when I knew that I was going to leave teaching and 100% invest my time and energy 
into elevating positive stories of the of native people of helping non-native people it's a fundamental issue fundamentally recognize that we exist so that we could then start to build partnerships and to restore tribal sovereignty restore land create an education system that is more equitable to our people but you can't do any of that until people know that you exist. <laughs> and so that was the moment when, when I decided, you know, and, and it was funny because my cousin, who's our co-founder, she was doing her public health master's at Harvard at the same time. And she had the exact same issue at Harvard. Uh, she, had a, she had a teacher give her a failing paper. Yeah, for, because she developed a public health intervention in partnership with the Native community in Boston. And she got her paper back from a professor and it was an F and it said, that the native population was not a viable enough population to kind of be considered for a public health intervention. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. And so we had that conversation with like this, you know, we had one conversation where I was sharing my experience, she was sharing hers and we were like, now we have to do something, right? We can't let this continue. Jesus. We're technically a public health nonprofit because we know that um, public health outcomes are directly, directly related to whether or not you feel like you are in a community that sees you and respects you. I could see uh, the impetus to to make that jump. Jesus, I am still taking a minute to digest that. Um, now I think uh, hearing your story, going through the website and the content you have makes a lot of sense. You've got like some really great educational content and I don't talk about it much, but I did teach for a couple years right after college. I enjoyed it, but I couldn't see myself doing it for 40 years and like it's something that was fun to do, but not, not, a, I'm not a lifer, so to speak, but I was looking through the educational materials and it was fantastic. And it's definitely something as my kids get a little bit older, I definitely want to integrate into, to supplement what they're, they're getting in school. And uh, I know we have a bunch of people that are listening that are very interested in either unschooling or homeschooling. And I know they'd be interested in the material. Could you talk a little bit about what's actually in the content? Our first, we, we called it, we call it a public health intervention, but it's really just a material for teachers. We wrote a little teacher's guide called Singer Native Students, which is directly related to my, my experience with, with, the, with my boss not seeing our students, right? And the book is in partnership with another Native-led nonprofit uh, out of Chico, California called Four Winds of Indian Education. And we basically com- we did like a compilation of a bunch of academic research looking at best practices for teaching Native children. And we also interviewed a bunch of Native community members and parents and students. And we wrote a little guide. It's like 70 pages or so that just gives you the very, very basic political and cultural context that any person honestly living in the United States should understand about Indian country. Things like tribal sovereignty, things like treaties, Things like very basic stereotypes, issues that, you know, like language that people use when addressing us as adults and our children that are connected to negative public health outcomes and self-perception. So like, for example, one one little stereotype is that all natives are really mystical and like naturally more connected to the environment. It's a stereotype, right? It's an assumption. Another assumption is that Native people live in reservations in rural areas. Seven out of 10 of us live in urban areas. And so the the issue with that assumption not going checked is that teachers and people living in cities don't think that they live in a community with Native people in it. But by addressing the assumptions head on, 
we, we can kind of check that right before that becomes an erasure issue. Yeah. So the book also lays out a bunch of examples of ways that you can integrate native voices, integrate the native community into schools and curriculums and into school culture. That's one source. We made a animated video guide that is uh, covers all the same topics, but in a little bit more detail. And it's available for free on our website, redbudresourcegroup.org and also on YouTube. And I think that those videos, not only are they great for adults, but they are teachable for kids. So if you wanna teach about tribal sovereignty, if you wanna introduce the idea of native geography and the fact that the place that you live is actually native land that is rooted in thousands of years of story and relationship, we have little videos that can introduce that idea to the adults and the children in your life. We also have a couple curriculums that we've developed as well. That's awesome. You brought up like a lot of really important points and like as a generic white guy, there's a lot of discomfort around a lot of these subjects that you're bringing up. So like I want to pick on one a little bit. You brought up the stereotype of like indigenous people being more in touch with the landscape as somebody that deals a lot with pretty far left leaning people, especially around conversations like land back. I always feel like we're like very much dancing on this line of racism because of this, like, we need to give the land back because they can manage it and they know how to. And it's like, well, I'm not disagreeing that we should do these things, but assuming just because somebody is indigenous, they can fix 300 years of destruction from colonialism is kind of racist. It's it's racist and it's also skirting responsibility, right? Yeah, it's like really, I feel uncomfortable and dirty, like making those like jumps. And people are so uncomfortable just like having the conversation and just saying, hey, I'm uncomfortable and like, I'm not sure what the right answer is, but like, this doesn't feel right. Feels like it's a, a really dangerous position to make or like just to even like broach the subject. And uh, I, I really appreciate the fact that your work is like touching on that because part of our problem is that we've, and as you, as a teacher, you definitely know this, like we pretend that racial inequities and racial divisions either don't exist or that like that was a problem a long time ago and like everyone's happy today or even if things aren't good today the colorblindness still exists the way this content is developed where you address that really well so i i really appreciate that i totally attribute that to my time as a middle school teacher in a very very diverse school district as you know, as a former teacher, like you have to learn how to hold energy and to hold space and to make people feel safe to make mistakes. And I can say that 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 training has been so helpful and has helped me from taking people's growth in this area of work, um, not not personally, you know, because I'm I'm getting up in front of people every day and talking about my story, my family's story and history. It is super personal and emotional and can be traumatic to talk about. Right having those skills to navigate really difficult conversations. I I feel like I only could have got that through teaching like the hardest grades (laughs) possible to teach. When I was in college and I did my externship teaching, I was, I wanted to be a high school English teacher and they're like, well, there's no high schools that are looking for interns right now. So you're going to go do your teaching assistance at a eighth grade middle school. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. And that experience is probably the reason why I can say to you right now, like how that made me uncomfortable. Because like, there's just a lot of those conversations and um, it, it's super uncomfortable, but also like really important. It's almost like that uncomfort is part of the, the resolution. 
Yeah, I, it's funny because I talk to people um, who help us develop their programs. And they're like, oh, like you're going beyond land acknowledgements class or whatever is really, really clear. What were you thinking when you designed it? And I'm saying, I'm thinking about what an eighth grader would need. And, and it's not to be, you know, like not to undermine anybody or, or, you know, like people are adults. We treat people like adults, of course. But we also have to recognize that this is information that we were supposed to start getting when we were children. Things about tribal sovereignty, things about the, the indigenous relationship to land, about our plants and our animals and our relationships to those things and our values. We were supposed to get this when we were young and we didn't get it. So, yeah. so we have to start at that level, right? And in that process, like anything, it's much less intuitive as an adult because you've been rewired another way. And that just, it just, it's a slow, pro- uncomfortable process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love going into trainings with teachers. I do a lot of trainings with high school teachers and a lot of native people. Like when we teach about stuff, we don't really teach about our culture because a lot of our cultural knowledge there, it's just, it stays in the family, you know, or stays in our tribes. But one thing I often emphasize is sovereignty, tribal sovereignty. And I remind teachers that we are, we are the third, so the United States federal government in the Constitution names three kinds of government that it has a relationship with. It's foreign nations, it's state governments, and it's Indian tribes. And so it is written in the earliest documents of the founding of this country that if you want to be a democratic citizen, you have to know how to have a relationship with that third government, right? And that's Indian nations. And Native people, particularly Native lawyers, are really good at using that argument to help us um, with land back initiatives, with water back initiatives, getting our um, input on that 30 by 30 plan, right, that are, that are being developed across the state and the world to address climate change. And so when I go into high schools and I tell teachers, like, this is your responsibility as a high school English teacher, a high school history teacher, you signed up for this when you took your, with, took your tests and all that, right? Uh, you have to make sure that your kids, if you want them to be responsible democratic citizens, they know how they have to know how to interact with Indian governments, with native governments. It's written into the Constitution of the United States. Not only that, but we believe it's a fundamental right we've had before the founding of the United States. And it kind of blows teachers' minds, but I also think that most of them are really excited about it uh, because it's new territory. It feels hopeful, right? It feels like those relationships might illuminate new solutions to problems that we're experiencing that we haven't thought about before. It also engages students in a different way because data shows that people are really interested in native culture. It's a part of what makes our work, I think, easier sometimes than, than groups that represent other, other minority groups is people really like native American stuff. Like they love to wear native American clothes and fashion they like to try to do our ceremonies. <laughs> and so there's like a built-in interest. It's just not directed at the right things, yeah. you know? And so we hope to kind of harness that energy and interest and direct it towards something that's actually useful to the community. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I live near Plymouth Plantation. So like I, that was like part of our childhood is like you go to Plymouth Plantation and see the Native Americans do their thing and the colonists and blah, 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 and everyone was happy. I mean, you know, but like there's definitely an interest in it because I think it's so disconnected from the world we live in today in terms of like how we think about the United States of America and also very intrinsic to the foundation of the country in many ways. So it's like this weird 
thing that's so close yet so far away, which is really intriguing, I think, to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. We've talked a bit about the education side, and you, you, I'm interested to know how you went from putting together this educational content to getting involved with the land acknowledgements, because that's like the other big thing that your organization does. Yeah, well, I'll first say that we um, originally, we were thinking that, you know, we have this whole public health arm, we have a K through 12 arm that's education, and we have another arm that's outreach to like, we call them public good organizations. It's a lot of nonprofits and things that are doing conservation work and that kind of stuff. But then we realized that the topics that we were bringing up with K through 12 education are the same topics that we're bringing up with conservation groups because the learning curve is so steep and so many people are at the very bottom of it, you know? And so we kind of combined the education and then the public good arm to just be like, it's all education. It's all just preparing people to be on our team, right? Preparing people to, to support, to support the native community um, respectfully. And it starts in kindergarten, but it's a lifelong process of unlearning and relearning how to re- interact with the world and how to relate to it. The la- I'm trying to remember how the land acknowledgement thing came up. I think that just we naturally started seeing as we started working with school districts and like try, trying to get funding. We got, originally got our funding from Harvard. And so we had to like figure out how to work. Ironically. <laughs> Super ironic, right? It was the world we live in. And so we were just like noticing everywhere the lack of basic understanding of native people at the same time, there was this like proliferation of the land acknowledgement. And we were actually hosting, this is what it was. We were hosting an event around Thanksgiving time in 2021. And we'd invited an elder who was serving as a mentor to speak and to present. And at the time we were kind of like, okay, I think we have to do a land acknowledgement. It feels weird being native people doing this but we'll see if this person wants to do it because he's really respected in the community. And we asked him to do it and he was like, absolutely not. And I will not show up if you make me do that because it is, it's, it makes me feel stupid. This is a very respected, very respected elder in the community. And, and he kind of just expressed that like he didn't feel comfortable acknowledging his own existence in front of an audience of white people who were coming to learn from him. That's very respectable. Yes. And I never like thought of it that way. I just thought it was a thing that you had to do. You know, I just kind of accepted it. And hearing from him made me like really stopped me in my tracks and made me reconsider what the actual purpose of that acknowledgement is and how Native people feel about it. And I I will disclaimer, many Native people are going to say like, you should give a land acknowledgement. They might help you write it. I tell people you should never ask a Native person to give an acknowledgement. I learned my lesson during that event um, because the land acknowledgements aren't for Native people. They're not for Native people. They're for settlers. They're for people who are living on the land that need to go through that process of, I don't know, acknowledging it and healing their own weird stuff, you know what I mean, with, with occupying land. But anyways, so from that experience, we add all these questions. Do Native people even like these acknowledgements? Who are they actually serving? What are they for? And it led us to this idea that we needed to create a program. And we called it, we ended up calling it Going Beyond Land Acknowledgements that is going to push people to go beyond them and to understand how they can do it. And one of the fundamental parts of this program is that we have 
a, a spectrum. We're going to call it an allyship spectrum for now, but that feels a little bit like fluffy. Um, but it's a spectrum of actions that a person can take. And we help people understand that you can be doing an action that you think is, is really, really great for the Native community at the same time that you're doing an action that is actually enabling the erasure of our people, or that's actually kind of supporting the ongoing genocide of our people in the case of California. So we help people understand like, okay, I'm doing 10 things in my, you know, for my community. What is the spectrum of their impact? Because I don't care if you give a land acknowledgement. I care if you are actively committing to reallocate resources and to restore sovereignty of our land and of our people, right? If you're not doing those things, then you're just like making everyone feel really awkward by making a statement in the beginning of an event that you know you're not going to follow through with. Yes, that I love the way you talk about these things. It's fantastic. <laughs> hey there, it's Andy from the Poor Pearls Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. Uh, <laughs> yes, so you've basically hit on like all of my issues around like a lot of the stuff you see around land back uh, or land acknowledgements rather, because people like use that as like a point to just be like, this is the thing that's important. Like, you know, we're on unceded territory, blah, blah, blah. But okay, what? And then what? And that's where I feel like nobody ever has an answer to and then what? Because of a lot of issues around the fact that, like you said, in your own experiences, indigenous people have been erased in their own communities because people have these very broad stereotypes of what indigenousness looks like. So people, especially white people that want to, you know, progressive white people that want to do the right thing, they just say like, oh, I'm on this unceded land and that that's that. They, they don't do anything to think about the local ecology and the history that's buried within that local ecology. The people in their community who are indigenous, who, again, they don't see, just like you had said, and they just go along with their day. Nothing changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it's really complicated. And, and, you know, like we are still figuring it out as we go and, and learning from our elders and people who've been doing this for decades before us in much harder conditions, I might add. But, you know, th there's some really positive growth within the Native community, like there's growing tribal consultation laws across the country. In November, um, Biden signed an executive order, is explicitly calling for more resources to go towards um, helping federal institutions and organizations partner with Native people for conservation purposes. And then there's people learning, even within the Native community, learning about tribal sovereignty and how it can be harnessed from a political and legal standpoint to gain us access to our land and our water. There's so much positive momentum. The challenge is to connect all the dots 
between the federal government, the state government, the county, the land trust, the conservation groups, the schools, the tribes, because everybody is figuring it out as we go. And there's we're finding that there's also often a lot of disconnect and people don't know how to communicate across their cultures and communities. You know, Native people, I can speak for myself and just observations, like sometimes don't feel very comfortable, don't feel very safe, right? Communicating with conservation or environmentally leaning groups, they do not feel safe and it's legitimate. It's because our, our bodies, our information, our spiritual practices have been taken from us and usually for profit for hundreds of years. And so there's a lot of healing that has to happen on that side, right? And that can only happen from within the native community. We, we can't heal, like somebody else can't heal us. We have to, we have to hold that with, within ourselves. But at the same time, the olive branch that we can offer as native people who've had the privilege to get to go to school and get to you know live in cities and get to travel and do all these things is we can help the other side, the non-native side, kind of process their own relationship to those challenges so that we can find a middle ground and starting to get that conversation flowing, you know, as soon as possible, because we really need it. We don't have time to waste. Yeah, there's a lot of issues going on, ecological destruction and climate change and the fact that our school systems are just, there's no money to keep them going the way they are, never mind improve them, which is what we desperately need. Mm-hmm. So like the, this kind of stuff, trying to build that supplemental content and helping people work through these major psychological weights from generations of harm given from basically mostly white people. It's a challenging subject. There's not an easy answer. And the answer for everyone isn't the same. And I think that's a part that gets again lost, especially on the side of white people who want to make things better, but feel uncomfortable with those conversations. So they just grasp at like vague, big picture ideas like like land back without actually doing the dirty work of going through this process of having these conversations and thinking about like, what, what do I have to do individually for my community and where I exist today? And um, it's tough. So I, I want to ask, one of the challenges that I see personally, you talked about like this erasure of indigenous people. How, how does somebody who doesn't see, not because they don't want to, but they just, they, they don't have those skills to identify or like, there's this weird line for, for me at least of like, I want to support indigenous people, but how do I do that without being like, Hey, you're, you're an indigenous person. Like, what do I do to help you? Like, it, it just feels like terrible, like in its own different kind of way. Yeah. It, it, like you said, it totally depends on the, the community. Right. I've had people email me or whatever, contact me and be like, I tried to give a donation to the tribal government, but they didn't want it. And <laughs> And it's just funny because, because like, I, I think about my tribe and, and my, my tribe, like, would not take random donations from random people either. I, I'm sure there's a complicated reason why that is. But I think at the core of it is that relationship building is really, really key to any partnership or any support that someone might offer. And relationship building with the Native community can take a really long time really, really long time. Any Western notion you have of how fast something should be, like just get rid of it uh, because it won't apply and it won't help you. But relationship building can look like literally just showing up to public events, just saying hi over and over and over again. Even if you mess up, even if you say something weird and you're like kicking yourself later because you said something weird, 
keeps showing up because people notice that consistency. And our community is forgiving when people show up and they keep growing and they keep trying to improve themselves. So finding ways to to show up for the community and public events is really important. Things like what you're doing right now, elevating the voices of Native people who are doing, doing work for the community without asking for much in exchange. I will say like reciprocity is a really important value, of course, but people are going to be really concerned that you're going to take their information and use it for profit because that's like what has been done to us forever. And so uh, being very thoughtful about that power dynamic, I would say is, is a, is a really important thing to consider. Of course, monetary donations to native led organizations is really important. I will say there's some things to be aware of when you do that, you want to really be thoughtful about if you're supporting a local group, right. Or if it's like an intertribal group, there's no right or wrong there. You just want to like think about who you want your funding to go to if that's something that you're doing. Again, if you're giving money, it's not because you expect something in return, right? If you get invited to a special ceremony or an event, don't assume that you can then like go take pictures and make money off of them somewhere on the internet or um, that you're always going to be invited as an open invitation, right? Just being really thoughtful about boundaries and power dynamics at all times and be aware that we are really concerned about our knowledge being uh, appropriated. Other ways to support the community, of course, like Andy, you're just one person, but if you're an organization that had a board or had, had leadership positions, I would say like you should have a local native person, especially with the, the topics that you cover have a local native person that you've built a relationship with on that board advising you, you know what I mean? Who can, who can um, represent the community in that way. I don't know the details about this, but I was in a training the other day. It was one of our trainings and there was a finance person there. And they said that there is a way that you can allocate certain parts of your taxes to the local tribal governments in your region. And so do some research on that. That's this is California. So I don't know about Massachusetts, but I, I do know that there are ways that you you can reallocate funding in that way. That's awesome. There's a local group here in the Bay Area called the Sigoriate Land Trust, and they do something called the Shumi Tax, and that's a voluntary land tax. And so people in that county can choose to give money to that group that is then putting it into the Native community. Yeah. So there, there's so many ways to do it. But I would say, and I know I've been talking a long time, but the most important way that you can support the native community is to point out whenever you notice that we are missing, because that helps people understand that we exist and that, and that we, there's a seat at the table that we're not at and that, that we need to be there. And then um, we're obviously, once we get in there, going to push for our sovereignty as much as possible, but we need to get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's why we're, we got you here right now. I know you're telling me before we started recording a little bit about some of the stuff you've got going on, some of the projects you're working forward on and uh, some of your partnerships. Could you speak about that? Starting in June, we are partnering with a a, a native led organization called Save California Salmon that's uh, based in Humboldt County, way up north in California by the Oregon border. And we are going to uh, be creating a Going Beyond Land Acknowledgements program like the one that we have, but it's going to be specifically for conservation organizations and with the purpose of land back, water back, and any kind of resource reallocation back to our communities. And I'm really excited about that. We're going to have a team, a feedback team of all Native-led 
ecologists, traditional ecological knowledge practitioners, cultural knowledge bearers, who are going to be making sure that their stories and their their case studies, their needs are front and center. And we are going to be using that program to specifically prepare people in the conservation environmental science field to reallocate land back to our people. That's like our biggest, our biggest project that we have going on to supplement that. Because as you know, the teacher, your content's only as good as what you have available to use to illustrate your lesson or meet your objective, right? We're going around with a media crew across state of California to meet with local tribes who have successfully reacquired land through diverse methods, sometimes through purchasing, like maybe they have a casino and they're using that money to purchase the land. Maybe they got help establishing a a land trust. Maybe they won some land back, right? Like got access through through litigation or through through a legal process. So we're going, and then also we're going to highlight non-federally recognized and federally recognized tribes and also native-led nonprofits. And so kind of highlighting like the big spectrum of what land back can look like. And the purpose of that is to break down for people how they can do the same thing. That's awesome. And again, with my like middle school teacher hat on, I'm thinking, how do we make this like as accessible as possible to the greatest number of people? And so we're going to be spending the next two years doing that. Well, when that content is ready to roll, you're going to have to let me know because I'm going to definitely want to pick your brain. Yeah, totally. And like I said, I'm I'm a learner too. I'm I'm, you know, definitely not an expert on land back, but I'm surrounded by people who are smarter than me. It's the best place to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For people that want to support Redbud Resource Group, where can I send them? So you can go to our website. It's redbudresourcegroup.org and I will mention Redbud is a plant and there's an East coast one and there's, there's West coast one, but it's a very special plant that is used for basket making in the native community. I don't know about the East coast, but on the West coast, that's what it is. And our, you, you can see it in the back here, but our logo is a red bud basket. That was my great, great grandmother's basket. And so that's why we're red bud. That's awesome. I just want to say that because some people like think that it's weed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> um, but you can go to our website, redbudresourcegroup.org. We have a newsletter. We um, You can contact us. Uh, we also have public events that are on our calendar on the website. Both We have some school PDs. We're doing like a, a, P, a professional development with the Smithsonian in a couple months um, that's free and open to the public. But then we also have our going beyond land acknowledgements uh, public masterclass as well. And that's on Zoom, right? That's on Zoom. And that is one meeting of a six meeting program. So we offer like the first meeting. And then if you have an organization, you feel like you need the big one, then we'll, we can talk about that too. But the first one is available to anyone. Awesome. And you guys are also on Instagram, right? We are on Instagram, Redbud Resource Group. And I don't think that we're on anything else. It's the only one that matters. I can't keep track <laughs> of all these things. Yeah. Yeah. Taylor, this has been fantastic. You've been a wonderful guest. Thanks for having me. 